Everybody, you're listening to Modern Guilt once again, hopefully, unless you're a first-time listener, in which case, what's up? This is episode 14. Yeah, Damon? 14? Yep, 14. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Or 13. No, 14, that's it is right. 14. Yeah. Um, eventually, we'll become pro- so prolific that counting is not going to matter. <laughs> Numerals will be um, ejected from the requirements of our life, maybe. Someone else will handle everything to do with numbers and time. Um, Anyway, so we're really lucky to be joined by a guest today. So hello, Amy McMahon. How are you? I'm good. How are you going? Thanks for having me. No problem at all. I'm well as well. Thanks for asking. So for a bit of context, Amy McMahon is the Greens candidate for the um, South Brisbane electorate in Queensland's upcoming state election, which is on the 31st of October. So we're interviewing her on the 31st, meaning we're exactly two months out. So maybe it's worth saying, how's the campaign going so far? What are your initial feelings and thoughts? Yeah, the campaign has been going really well. Um, Yeah, today is uh, an exciting milestone, two months to go. And we have, uh, we're just about to hit a very uh, kind of exciting point in the campaign because the last two months really heat up and get really busy and, um, you know, tend to be uh, the busiest part of the campaign. But one of the cool things is that um, I also ran in 2017 um, in the same seat in South Brisbane. And one of the focuses of the campaign is having these one-on-one conversations with people. And we've Mm -hmm. been tracking the number of conversations that we've been having. And we've actually had, um, we're just about to hit the same number of conversations that we had in the whole of the 2017 election. So we've hit that milestone. We've still got two months to go. Um, So Mm -hmm. that's really exciting. But we know we're well on track. um, And the feedback we've been getting on the ground has been um really good yeah right that's cool what's it what's it like on a daily basis because i have no idea what you have to do for campaigning yeah yeah well in south brisbane um because this is kind of like a seat that's very close and um there's a very good chance it will make it over the line um there's a lot going on um it's really um like energizing and exciting i'm in the office at the moment we've got a full room of people um just next door so there's um about five of us who are working on the campaign nearly full-time most of us are full-time and um we're focused on these one-on-one conversations. Um, So a lot of conversations over the phone, uh, a lot of door knocking where we go and chat to people at their doors. Um, We've also started doing this thing that we call street chatting. Um, We basically just go to like a busy section of street and chat with people on the way by. But the focus is on trying to have conversations with as many people as possible to find out what people's issues are, what people are thinking about, um, what challenges people might be facing, and then being able to talk to people about why those issues are um, political and what a Greens vision might be able to do for Mm -hmm. people's lives. So that's the big focus. So day to day, it's a lot of um, planning for these conversations, um, you know, working out where we're going to go, gathering volunteers, organising volunteers, um, that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's really interesting. Mm. So... Is that like people actually 
Like it seems like you're very much sitting down and actually having a conversation. Yeah, yeah, that's with yeah, that's right. Yeah, so um, like at a, a phone bank or at a door knock, um, you're just you know someone will open the door and you'll say, oh hi, I'm I'm Amy. I'm from the South Brisbane campaign. We're just yeah. here to find out, um, you know, what's on your mind. What are your feelings about politics? Um, what's going on in your neighbourhood? And then um, we have a bit of a chat about that, and you know, try and draw links between what people are feeling in their individual lives and a broader political context. And then from there um, to say, well, this is the Greens' vision um, and this is what we could do for Queensland if we were working together um, Mm. and then sort of go from there. So this might be a little too broad of a question to answer succinctly. So I'm sorry if, you know, we end up sort of circling around it, but that's okay even if we do. Like what's the general mood like amongst people at the moment? The general mood on the ground here in South Brisbane, like the, the feedback that we're getting as Greens um, uh, door knockers, Greens volunteers is very positive. We have ha- we've got the benefit of having done a few of these large field campaigns over the last few years. So um, Jonathan Sree, who's our local councillor, um, really uh, exciting local representative, um, was really when we started doing this on the ground field campaigning. And then since then we've done Uh, state election, federal election, um, another council campaign. So we've had a lot of time to go out and talk to people and kind of establish the Greens as a party that um, has these conversations and really wants to know about people's lives um, and offer this kind of supportive vision. So in that regard, it's really positive. I think one of the, the overwhelming sentiment in the community, though, real frustration with politics in general mm-hmm. um you know the the overwhelm overwhelmingly when we say to people you know what are your feelings about politics in general like people will laugh they'll be like look i don't <laughs> i don't mean to offend you but i think most politicians are crooks or um you know something a bit more toned down than that but a lot of people just generally feel like a bit switched off a bit frustrated um i spoke with a woman yesterday and she was um you know she's really interested in the welfare of her community, but she was like, look, I've just had to stop watching the news. And um, to be honest, I don't know what's going on. And a lot of people are feeling like that, that um, we were drawing on theory around anti-political sentiment. And it's the most common feeling that is in the neighbourhood, which is really interesting but also a really exciting opportunity for us because we're able to offer this hopeful vision that cuts through some of that frustration. Mm. That's really interesting because it's something that me and Hayden talk about quite a lot. And, you know, I guess, do, do you feel like there's a overarching narrative why people are more distrustful of politicians and, and the news and, and everything? Yeah, yeah. Look, I think over the last um, few decades, people have seen the ways in which, um, you know, politics has been captured by big corporations and our political parties have become more and more withdrawn from the community, more and more withdrawn from people's lives. You know, historically, 
political parties had really strong links into the community through unions or um, through church groups or through business groups. You know, we, I know the history of a lot of these different political parties started with um, big movements that had these kind of organic networks of people on the ground. But what we've seen over the last um, few decades with the decline of the union movement, um, this kind of atomization of people, individualization, kind of the the broader effects of um, neoliberalism. We've seen this withdrawal of politicians and political parties from people's everyday lives. And people see the way in which the, the major parties have become much more similar as a result of that process as well. And so a lot of people recognise rightly that regardless of who you vote for, um, you're getting something very similar. And because there aren't those connections between political parties and representatives in the community, um, there's a real lack of understanding about what's actually going on in people's lives. Um, and so people don't necessarily see political parties responding to, you know, their actual lived experiences, their material conditions. And so at the same time, the community have withdrawn from politics as well. You know, we're seeing membership of political parties um, rapidly declining and people, you know, less and less committed to who they will vote for. You know, we, we find very regularly people will vote for different political parties at different levels of government. Um, their votes will shift between elections, um, whereas, you know, maybe 30 years ago people were much more committed in terms of who they voted for. Um, but that kind of, uh, like, solid base isn't there anymore. That's really interesting to hear because we've actually been quite surprised um, since we've started this podcast because a lot of what we talk about is isolation whether mm -hmm. that be sort of like ideological or even physical or social um, and the way that I guess contemporary sort of systemic mm. failures yeah. are making that felt more and more by mm -hmm. more people yeah. um, and we started this as just something small that we were initially just doing literally for both of us. We were mm. having Zoom conversations and then we just started recording them one day. Mm. But people have been reaching out and find we're finding that they really resonate with a lot of the topics mm. that we discuss. Yeah. And yeah. we sort of thought that maybe we were two kind of unusual cats talking about some yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that like We were like thinking about crazily in our bedrooms or whatever. Um, and... I mean, obviously, you have a far larger gauge on it than we do, but that public sentiment is really growing. Mm. Oh, Damon, you look like you're going to chip in. Oh, no, 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 because I'm liking where you're going. Okay. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. like, I'm fairly um, familiar with most of the Greens' policy positions, mm. but do you maybe want to explain to the listeners why you think the Greens are sort of suited for people who are feeling that sort of apathy in like a concrete mm, way? Mm, yeah, it's a really good question. Um, I think we part of what we've been doing over the last few years, having these conversations means that we've got a really good sense of what is going on with people's lives. And so we've been thinking really deeply about how the Greens message 
and Greens policies and initiatives needs to be responding directly to what people um, are feeling. So for this election, one of the things we're talking a lot about is the power of big corporations and how Mm -hmm. this has affected um, not only the political system, but people's day-to-day lives, um, talking about things like essential services, healthcare, education. And this is something that a lot of people um, recognise immediately. Like a lot of people will have those kinds of instincts about the power that big corporations have had in our in our economy, in our society, in our political system. So we've been talking quite explicitly about the ways in which we would be taking on the power of these big corporations and making them pay their fair share. So looking at, um, you know, levers that we have at the state government level to make sure that these companies are actually, um, you know, paying their fair share in tax and royalties because that, that those are our resources. They're, you know, they're mining companies are using our resources. They're using our labour. Um, this is our... Um, this is our common wealth and we're seeing so much of it flow offshore um, or into the pockets of CEOs. So we've been talking a lot about how we can make these corporations pay their fair share and then with that money being able to properly fund the services that people need to lead a good life. Um, and, you know, these things come up commonly. People talk about um, healthcare, people talk about education and a lot of people like have those experiences. We spoke to a a fellow yesterday and he was like, you know what, the cost of healthcare is my biggest um, issue. And then he told us this story about how he'd had to go get um, an injection in his shoulder and he was $500 out of pocket. And he's like, yeah, we have a great healthcare system here in Australia, um, but there's so many things that you still have to pay for out of pocket. Um, we've been talking to a lot of families who send their kids to state schools and they're still having to pay hundreds if not thousands of dollars a year to send their kids to state schools. You know, the public transport system in Brisbane uh, is one Woeful. of the most expensive. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty bad, it's, it's pretty bad but um, it's, it's particularly bad in Brisbane. So being able to tap into those experiences that people have, um, particularly right now as we head into um, a recession or recession-like conditions, um, a lot of people struggling. And even prior to the crisis, um, you know, unemployment levels in Queensland, particularly in parts of rural Queensland, that were really high. So part of our message is tapping into this kind of broader political context and then saying this is what it would mean for your day-to-day lives if we were able to take on the power of these big corporations that sounds like it's um like really pragmatic is, is there a way do you find that you encounter like identity politics much when you're out there um door knocking like people who say well because what you've explained to me is i like hearing all of the policy and it's really refreshing to hear people talk about that um especially when you it feels like you know people are more used to just being like lumped into the different political camps yeah. and they're just kind of kept there yeah, yeah, yeah. you know and it's like well, maybe you ha- you're saying things that I agree with, but I could never become a greenie, you know, yeah, or never become yeah, yeah. because of this, like, legacy or, you know, idea that they have. Yeah. Do you think there's ways to sort of combat that for, to make people less ideologically, you know, less aligned in the, in the sense that this is my core personality? And yeah. More in the sense that... Yeah, yeah. Like, one, one of the, the key threads that is running through the Greens approach is this idea that um, there are these things that are common to all people in terms of what we need to to lead a good life, having those services, having um, time to spend with your family and friends, you know, being able to 
lead whatever life you want. And so we've been focusing really on these universal things that everybody needs and trying to bring people together under this common banner um, and being able to connect with people in that way and to say, like, you know, regardless of your background, you need really good health care, um, you need access to affordable housing, um, you need access to, to good education and trying to build that kind of common sentiment that that it's it's really like it's us against these big corporations at the end of the day. You know, being able to say the enemy is not um, refugees or migrants. The enemy is those big CEOs that make millions of dollars while, um, you know, while you have to fundraise um, for your kid's school to refresh its facilities. And so that's really what we've been trying to do. I think, of course, recognising that there's some really important struggles to be made in, like, anti-racism space, um, around queer rights, um, you know, fighting for refugees, um, so much important stuff to do there. Um, that's at the forefront of their minds at the same time as building this kind of collective universal vision um, that we can get get people on board with. Um, and one of the really interesting things uh, that we found over the last few years is um, voters or, or maybe not voters, just like people who other political parties kind of write off, like people who vote for One Nation, for example. Um, One Nation voters, when what, we go and talk to them. I'm, I'm not aware of what's One Nation? Sorry. Oh, sorry. One Nation is like a, a far-right party that's been around in Australia for about um, 20, 25 years. You're very anti-immigration, has some, um, you know, really abhorrent... Um, racist ideology, mm. um, but have been doing quite well in um, like working class, rural and, and suburban areas as well. And when we go and talk to people who, um, you know, say I used to vote for One Nation, when we offer this vision, mm. One Nation voters are of, often really resonate with the Greens vision because they're some of the most frustrated and alienated um, people and notwithstanding you know, the fact that they voted for some, you know, really abhorrent racist ideology. Individual voters, we found, you know, are people who are feeling really frustrated with the political system. Mm. Um, One Nation voters are actually more likely than anyone else to say that the political system needs to be completely burned down um, and start again. Um, and so being able to, yeah, <laughs> being so. able to break through some of those, some of those barriers yeah. um, is actually really powerful. And I think, you know, there's a lot of people who, when the Greens knock on their door, they think, oh, well, the Greens aren't going to be interested in what I have to say. Um, mm. Or, you know, I know, I automatically know what these people have to say. And when we go in, we say, oh, actually, we're we're just really interested to know, like, what are you thinking about? Um, what is your life like? What issues are you facing? And start to break down some of those barriers and also break down some of the perceptions about the Greens, which you alluded to as well. Um, people definitely have some, you know, long-held opinions about the Greens um, that we're trying to to break down and to show mm. to people, like, we actually, we, we care about people and as well as caring about the environment um, and we're here to fight for you as much as we're here to fight for ourselves. Damon, just quickly, you, you might notice I just put a link in the chat on Whereby, which is a, a link to some photos of Pauline Hanson wearing a hijab in Parliament. 
And yep. I hope you'll notice that she is clearly uh, not of the Islamic persuasion. Um, well, I can't and... actually see the article. Oh, really? But, uh... <laughs> but yeah, well, um, yeah. To um, to give you an idea of the sort of party that One Nation is, um, Pauline Hanson thought it would be a good idea to wear a hijab to Parliament as a uh, publicity stunt. So there you go. <laughs> you can check yeah, yeah. that out in your own time. Um, <laughs> so in response, um, Amy, to I guess that sort of idea of dispelling maybe stereotypes about what the Greens stand for, it's. Mm. Um, I had a thought, and it's probably somewhat fortunate in a sense now, because I was worried that maybe the sort of prevalence of the COVID-19 pandemic in the public conscience has probably um, dislodged a lot of progressive, uh, sort of, sorry, progressive issues from people's minds, or at least their, what they see as priorities at the, the moment. And amongst those would obviously be the climate movement. But you guys actually mm. seem to have pivoted pretty well away from that and i don't know if that might have been a conscious decision i'm sure it probably was because you're all smart people i'd imagine <laughs> but has any of this been been a decision to try and align your sort of policy initiatives with the idea of bouncing back from covid in terms of like an economic rebuild and how we restructure mm. how we do things from now on yeah. is that conscious yeah yeah yeah, absolutely. Um, because what we've been trying to do is respond directly to people's uh, material conditions and their everyday lives. Um, we've definitely put a number of issues to the forefront um, and that's just in responding to, to conversations and recognising um, that we're going to need a really robust plan for what we do over um, the next year. And if we don't do it, um, those big corporations and the major political parties are going to capture what that recovery looks like and we're already seeing that. And so being able to carve out a space for, you know, progressive ideas around um, the economy, around housing, around jobs, been a really important part of what we've been talking about over the last um, few mm -hmm. months. And, um, yeah, being able to connect with people directly on, on what they're experiencing Um you know, rather than going out and being like, what about this other thing that you should care about? Being able to, to say to people, yeah, we understand um, that you're doing it tough at the moment and you're really worried about what's coming next um, and here's our plan and here, here's how it links into, you know, a broader picture that um, the Greens already have. You know, everything is based on... In, in the Australian Greens, we have these four pillars. So everything's based on these four pillars. And this is how that would translate into mm. your life. Um, and definitely the COVID crisis has, um, I think, revealed in a lot of ways, a lot of big gaps and challenges in our economy, um, in our healthcare system, that we already knew were there, but have kind of really come to the forefront. And it's given us an opportunity to talk about um, some of those things in a bit more detail. And, um, you know, people might not immediately associate the Greens with, um, you know, having a, a robust healthcare policy, for example, or having, um, you know, a plan around jobs. And so we've had this real opportunity this election to bring some of that stuff to the fore um, and to be talking about that. Um, some of the stuff we've been talking about um, really, 
exciting. We've been talking about the possibility of reviving manufacturing here in Queensland. And so talking about things like green steel, um, green concrete, talking about obviously renewable energy, manufacturing those things right here in Queensland. Um, And a lot of people recognise like, oh yeah, we've let this go over the last few decades, but that has become so clear over the COVID crisis. Sorry, that's the office Um, has become so clear, particularly around manufacturing, because people are like, oh, you've got these really fragile um, global supply chains around like um, PPE for healthcare, for example. Like we actually have a shortage of like filter material um, in our hospitals at the moment. And, you know, that's because it's all manufactured in like a specific place overseas. And what could we be doing right here in Queensland? Um, so, yeah, there's definitely been a lot of like responding to the immediate context that we're in. It's funny, um, I guess no one really predicted that the whole world was going to suddenly realise how fragile we all were. <laughs> I was really fascinated to see like the sudden yeah. jump to nationalism after like a general sort of mm. like, you know, like I... I studied economics and we were sort of beat over the head the whole time that the best possible way is just to outsource to, you know, the cheapest area because um, that's where you get all the productivity gains and and all that sort of nonsense. Um, And I feel like now a lot of people probably felt the burden of having manufacturing leave, um, but maybe they weren't, you know, loud enough or whatever, and they're sort of swept under the rug. And it's only after this that we finally realize how bad it is not owning mm. the means of production, mm. not meant to be an mm. inflammatory I statement. Think, but. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think, um, you know, there's this broad kind of economic logic that um, we've been sold over the last few decades um, around how you should run an economy and, like, you know, looking at that global context around, like, international development and um, and the implications here in Australia have been... Um, really dire. You know, I've I've just spent um, the last couple of years working out in like a satellite city to Brisbane called Ipswich, which has historically been um, like a industrial uh, mining town. And, you know, that was just decimated in the 80s and they're still feeling the impacts of that. But we've been told, oh, no, like, you know, we had to let that industry go, you know, it's a lot cheaper and we let those um, companies make that de- those decisions for us. And, um, yeah, a lot of that is, is coming back to affect us. And I think also being able to think through the implications for, like, global solidarity as well, like what has this meant for um, people in Bangladesh, for example, who, you know, a lot of women, for example, working in, like, really poor conditions, and, you know, that's been part of this broader logic um, that we've been told, you know, this is this is how, this is what we need to do for growth and there's some benefit for you down the track. Um, you've just got to wait a bit longer. Yeah. It's pretty bleak that the benefit ends up being kind of like just little material widgets, slightly less, you know, like more affordable things that yeah, at the cost yeah, of someone's, yeah. you know, um, brutal employment. Yeah, well, we know who's really benefiting from this, and it's not—it's not the workers. Yeah, yeah, um, and certainly not humanity as a whole. Um, I think, if anything, fidget spinners are proof that we're probably on a steep decline. Yeah, <laughs> I've just had a thought that's probably still formulating as I speak. So bear with me if I take a moment to articulate this question. But the idea of obviously. Um, 
a return of manufacturing to Australia and I mean broadly speaking you'd say the West although obviously that's outside of your purview as someone who's studied um, international development as well I'm well aware that this almost sort of um, Stockholm syndrome has now been developed in a lot of the sort of former global south if you want to use that term and this is not an electoral issue but I'm just curious about your thoughts on it like do you think if there was a return of or a withdrawal of all of this sort of industry and production and whatnot and cheap labor from countries like Bangladesh that people there would be best off having the band-aid sort of ripped off because although I understand that in the long term it's probably in their best interests to not work for next to nothing per hour making Nike shoes or whatever there probably would still be like a short-term negative consequence right Have mm. you, what do you think about that yeah, I think it, I think this is where like thinking about that global solidarity is really important and thinking about, you know, the the impacts of the decisions that we make here in Australia actually have huge implications for a lot of other parts of the world. Mm. And that would need to be part of um, you know, particularly any federal policy to be thinking about those linkages to think about, you know, the the immense privilege uh, and wealth that we've been able to amass over a number of decades as a country that's been um, a beneficiary in a lot of ways of global development, um, mm. notwithstanding the fact that, you know, we have some um, third world-like conditions in lots of parts of Australia. But, yeah, I think we definitely need to think through that transition as well and not to just... Um, you know, be ripping those capabilities out, but to be thinking about these like supply chains uh, in a bit more detail. There's a great book that I read recently that the name I can't um, quite remember, but Kate Arnoff is one of the authors. It's about the concept of a Green New Deal and it's kind of written in this lovely like narrative style and they have a chapter on thinking about global supply chains in a way that... Um, is environmentally friendly but also thinks about you know labor conditions and living conditions for people um, in different parts of the world um, and I think you know if we were to bring um, some manufacturing back here to Queensland um, the benefits would be immense we'd still be relying a lot on um, supply chains in other parts of the world mm. but thinking about those sites of kind of struggle and solidarity they have these really exciting ideas about you know if governments were to put in like these ethical procurement processes, for example, and to say, okay, if we're going to be buying electric buses or we're going to be buying materials, how can we make sure we're only buying from companies that have really good um, labour conditions and are looking after people and paying them properly and being able to use our transition here as a way to be connecting with workers in other parts of the world. Um, it's a really good question. It's really like there's some good like media <laughs> yeah. stuff to, to get your yeah, head Yeah, there's a lot of layers there. to it as well. So um, yeah, I didn't mean to yeah. open Pandora's box there. No, no. And like, yeah, this is like a long-term struggle, right? Like we're Absolutely. still struggling for like climate justice. We're like even here in wealthy countries that, that struggle is ongoing. Um, but I think having those international links in at, in your mind is really important. That's probably a good segue to talk about um, climate justice because this is one of the things that I've been fascinated about mm. for a long time where it's sort of like unanimously accepted as an issue, um, even if it is politicised to the point that some people will deny, you know, how much of an issue or if it's an issue at all. But 
largely it's something that is happening that people can recognize. Mm. But one thing that I've never really been able to note is how do you even begin fixing it, you know, and mm. not detriment entire uh, industries or, you know, do it in a way mm. that's not going to just punish lots of people, especially those with, you know, mm. less wealth. Because there's so many different ways to, to address it. Like in New Zealand, uh, I think we have a fairly significant amount of it just locked up in like farming, which is sort of our holy grail industry that's you know, somewhat untouchable. I guess it'd be the equivalent would be mining in Australia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a really, really good question. And I think thinking through how you would be supporting workers and communities and like rural towns that have historically relied on coal mining in particular has to be at the heart of any climate policy and any climate movement as well. Um, And I think, you know, this is um, slowly coming around in Australia, like this concept of a just transition or whatever you'd like to call it, I think has to be at the heart of this um, because otherwise we're going to keep on getting this very kind of polarised debate, um, this idea that it's it's jobs or the climate and you can't have both. Mm. Um, and being able to talk to people and demonstrate the ways in which uh, transition could be really fruitful in terms of jobs, in terms of um, the economy, in terms of people's everyday lives at the same time as, you know, decarbonising as quickly as we bloody can to avoid, you know, some of the worst of climate change. And so we've been thinking a lot about this um, over the last couple of years and trying to reach out to these rural communities and talk directly to workers and their Um, you know, their lived experience of what it's like to go through a downturn, um, it's devastating. And to say there's all these things we could be doing um, to help you um, that would, you know, have all these other flow and benefits for the community as well. In an an episode of the podcast we did earlier, we talked about what I thought was a really great article published by a New York Times magazine, which, I mean, you might have even encountered, but I think the title of it was called The Great Climate Migration Has Begun. And it was, for me, probably the most accessible and thorough uh, article that I had read about projecting the the movement of people as a Mm. response to climate change. And an enormous part of that was the increasing strain on cities and what will be and become in the future megacities in terms of uh, feeding the population of those cities and also providing services and whatnot. Um, And I I know firsthand just through sort of anecdotal experience and connections and stories that I've heard in southeast Queensland and sort of like the New South Wales tablelands, I think we've already started what I would call the the very sort of like the head of the turtle of climate migration people coming out to the cities on the coast um, because Mm. the droughts have made conditions too bad in country towns and farms and i wonder to me brisbane it feels hotter and more concrete every day Mm. now i know Mm. the greens have a lot of what i consider to be pretty smart ideas around how we should sort of develop and plan cities and stuff but maybe just for people who live in Brisbane or even in the South Brisbane electorate, like, do you have any specific ideas about how we could make South Brisbane or the inner city in Brisbane a more resilient place as more people move in and as things start to heat up? 
Yeah, yeah, it's a really, really interesting question. How do we build our cities in a way that are going to, is going to be able to accommodate more people and make these cities sustainable and, you know, beautiful places to live? Um, cities are really exciting because these are like the new sites of struggle in a lot of ways. Like we have this concentration of people and working together in the city could get all these incredible outcomes um, in terms of climate change, but also broader social justice. Um, and we've been talking a lot about development in, here in South Brisbane. We have seen a huge amount of development. Um, we've seen property developers be able to build, you know, there's just been an explosion of new apartment buildings um, in the electorate. And if you've been here for any length of time, you would have seen that change happening. And partly as a result of both um, state governments and local council really beholden to property developers. We've had, we've been seeing all this development go on and seeing property developers get all sorts of relaxations on, you know, existing regulation and tax breaks and not paying sufficient money to the city councils to invest in infrastructure. So we've been talking a lot about sort of understanding this broader context, like how this has happened, and then thinking about, yeah, what could our neighbourhoods look like? What could our cities look like? Um, that means we'll be able to deal with, um, you know, future challenges, being able to deal with like pandemics in a better way, being able to deal with climate change, um, and talking a lot about how to make sure that the people who are here get a say in what goes on um, and have a say in that development. We know that um, urban planning works so much better when the existing community gets a say in what goes on. You end up with, you know, infrastructure and facilities that people actually use um, as opposed to, you know, things that have been made, uh, decisions that have been made by someone very far away from that community. So focusing on making sure people get a say in that development um, is the first thing. And then making sure there's some requirements on any new development to make sure that it's actually sustainable. You've got requirements around, um, you know, technology and solar panels and batteries um, embedded in those buildings. Um, but also talking a lot about um, public housing, which I think is um, a really exciting pathway to achieving all these other goals at the same time. Um, we have this huge housing crisis in Queensland. Um, as you've mentioned, lots of people kind of moving into the southeast um, corner and um, really struggling in the private rental market and the private housing market. And, um, you know, right now things are particularly bad. So looking at being able to build um, thousands more public homes that would be, you know, beautifully designed, co-located with services that have gardens that are nice and cool, actually built for a Queensland climate. A lot of the um, new apartment buildings that we've seen um, pop up around South Brisbane um, aren't particularly well suited to the climate. You need to be running your air conditioner all the time. Um, the windows aren't properly insulated. These kinds of simple things that would make those buildings, um, you know, a lot easier to run and nice places to live. Uh, so making sure that's embedded in the design of um, social housing as well. And then thinking about beyond that, you know, do we have enough green space? Do we have, a, you know, enough trees, like really simple things like tree cover, how much that can cool down a street, um, being able to hold onto the trees that, that we already have. There's some, you know, really important research around how important tree cover is. Um, and then, yeah, thinking about things like public transport, how people get around, uh, making sure there's um, active transport for you to get around on your bicycle. 
Um, and, yeah, Brisbane hasn't done a particularly good job of this in part because we have this planning scheme that's written by property developers who just want to be able to build in as quickly and cheaply as they want. But, you know, they, they too lose out in a city that is not particularly well designed. Um, down here in West End, a lot of the new apartments that have gone on down um, on the river, people were told even a decade ago, oh, there's going to be a new ferry terminal right out the front on the river. And 10 years later, we're still waiting for it. Um, you know, there's, so there's some benefits for developers um, to be able to have some of this really, you know, good investment in public infrastructure um, so people can get around. Do you think there's a wider um, discussion? Because a lot of that's really interesting, especially considering a lot of what me and Hayden have talked about in terms of uh, like fragility, like systemic fragility. Do you think there needs to be like a wider conversation that pops up more in politics on resilience, of, like just against random shocks of some kind, like a pandemic or like the Brisbane flood, yeah. or a, you know, yeah. just whatever is going to be happening. Cause if 2020 showed us anything, it's that shit hits the fan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think like in terms of the way that I think about resilience, a big part of this is building those communities and having that kind of collective solidarity, um, which is can be really hard in um, in a city and even a neighbourhood like this. It can be really hard when you're living in an apartment and, you know, you get out of your, your car in the car park and you go up the lift to your, your house so finding ways to build those connections within a neighbourhood, that means when we do get these shocks, there's there's that kind of organic organising that happens. Um, and we saw some of that um, in during the lockdown here in South Brisbane. We saw some really lovely um, projects around mutual aid, um, you know, a lot of organising happening on Facebook um, to build those connections. But there's still a lot of work to be done. Uh, it's not just enough to have that happening in one neighbourhood, like thinking about how we're building solidarity with, you know, outer suburbs, thinking, I mentioned Ipswich before, how can we be building those connections um, more broadly so that when we do have, yeah, floods, when we've got you know, the bushfires happening again, we've got smoke coming through the city. Have we got those networks there of people who can be working together in terms of mutual aid, but also working collectively politically to to have the kinds of changes that we're going to need in place to deal with those those future shocks? That sounds really nice. This is the first time... Well, <laughs> no, I mean, the first right. time I've ever had neighbours that I've known was uh, when I basically moved in here a few months ago and then the neighbor popped by and had a community grant and was like, oh, let's all have a barbecue and get to know each other. And now we check on each other. It's great. You know, and it's yeah. like, it just yeah. threw me off that watching movies yeah. from the nineties where you see, you know, someone moves in and then, you know, the friendly yeah. neighbors bring around like a, yeah. I don't know, like a bunch of bread or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and like, where's that go? Like, you know, it's just totally disappeared. Yeah. I think part of that is like, we're all working really long hours or if you're not working really long hours, you're completely stressed out of your mind trying to look for work that doesn't exist or, you know, you're trying to work out how you'll survive on um, on job uh, seeker. And so we have this broader economy that's set up in such a way where people don't have time to build those connections. I mean, we barely have time to see our family and friends, let alone 
um, you know, check on our neighbours or other acquaintances. And so I think part of this broader political discussion um, also needs to be about tackling that. We, we talk about the concept of the, the politics of time um, and how the way our economy is set up has really just sapped us of time that we could be investing in our communities or, you know, other projects, mm. the things that make our lives meaningful. Um, so, I mean, kind of at a, at a low level talking about something like a four-day work week. So at least we could eke back one day a week that we could be putting into these other things that we want to do with our time. You know, historically, the, the length of the working day and the length of the working week has been one of the, the huge parts of the union movement. Um, and we've really seen that decline over the last few decades. So I think bringing that back to the back to the table. One of the initiatives that we announced during the 2017 election that got um, some of the most attention of the whole election was our proposal for four new public holidays. And um, people were just so excited even by the prospect of getting, um, you know, four days out of the year that we get back for ourselves that we could then be investing into our communities and our families and friends. Isn't that crazy? It's only four days, you know, and it's just like it means so yeah. much as well. And yeah, it, yeah, yeah, that's yeah, yeah. right. Interesting as well that I feel as though I have my finger on the pulse of, you know, politics in Australia, and I'm surprised that I hadn't heard of that. It's interesting that maybe that was one of the points that was sort of um, pushed to the fore, I mean, sorry, pushed away from the fore by the media, perhaps, because that was too tantalising yeah. of a prospect <laughs> for people. We got a, we got a very... Um, you know what? A very sensational front page of the Courier Mail. That oh, really? um, it was. Okay. Uh, that it was. Um, the headline was um, Dole Bludger's Day Off" or something like <laughs> oh, that. Great. Like, yeah, yeah. It, it, it wasn't quite that, oh, but no. it. Um, but you yeah. can't yeah. win, hey. <laughs> But, you know, everyday people that we went to talk to thought it was great um, and yeah. thought it was, you know, something really good. <laughs> and then, yeah, we think beyond that, like the struggle for a four-day work week and the three-day weekend, yeah, needs to be on in our minds as well. Mm. So to segue, what is one good idea and one bad idea that you think Jackie Trad has had for South Brisbane? Oh, um, well, I might just preface this by saying, like, uh, in any particular electorate, um, mm -hmm. you know, you've got individual candidates, but it's really about a broader political system, right? Like, and, and I come to this as part of a bigger movement, as part of like a Greens movement. And mm -hmm. Jackie Trad is coming at this as a member of a political establishment um, that, you know, has been responsible for the decisions that we've seen in Queensland over the past few decades. Labor, with the exception of a few years when the LNP were in power, have, have been in power in Queensland for over 30 years. And in this particular seat, it has only been Labor representation for um, the past 43 years. And so I think um, it's important to sort of flag that those broader mm -hmm. legacies and like being representatives of a particular ideology. And yeah, I mean, obviously Labor are, are a mainstream party. They mm -hmm. take huge amounts of corporate donations. Um, they've written legislation in favour of, um, of big corporations. I think um, one of the things that has affected this neighbourhood um, the most has been overdevelopment. Um, mm -hmm. So Labor rewrote the Planning Act in 2016. Jackie Trad was the planning minister at that time. Mm, in that's that, interesting. Yeah, in that year, Labor took 
$240,000 in donations from developers. And so that particular policy is written under the cloud of influence of property developers. And so we can pretty directly see the way in which that legislation has affected this neighbourhood in a very tangible, material way. Particularly, um, you know, when we see these big developer developments that have been allowed to build higher and wider than what is stipulated in um, the neighbourhood plans, which is kind of the lowest level um, planning documents. Um, so I think, I think that's one of um, the worst things, and that's that's clearly one of the things that people have been bringing up most regularly um, mm -hmm. when they when they when we talk about like what's affecting your day to day life. And then one of the best things was that the other question. Yeah, you can just pass if there's nothing I'm, you can I, might, I might pass just because we're eight weeks out from an election and, um, you know, it would be a shame to, to, to lob an, an own goal. Um, look, All I right, think, fair enough. you know, uh, the Labor Party are, they're not the party they have been historically and mm -hmm. there's a lot of things we can point to historically that the Labor Party have fought for. And, you know, there's a lot of excellent people who are in the Labor Party. There's always room for them in the Greens as well. <laughs> nice. Yeah, well well done. <laughs> uh, how are you for time? I just want to make sure that all we're not good. Yeah, yeah, sapping yeah. your afternoon. No, 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 all good. Okay, cool. cool. So one of the things that uh, you've been thinking a lot about is the impact of COVID on young people, which is something that has really struck me over the past few months. As a young man. As a young man myself. <laughs> um, and, I mean, maybe I'll offer my thoughts on this and then I'll, I'll, we'll see what you think about it. And Damon, please chime in as well. Mm. And I understand that this might come across as mm, somewhat selfish or whatever, but I'm going to say it regardless. Like, it seems to me that right now people of our generation are basically putting uh, our society's life support on afterpay and we're shouldering a lot of the cost that is ultimately eventually going to have to be paid back through taxes because right now people are just printing money. Um, we're keeping our economy and our society largely shut down, like we're seeing the recession. And to me, it seems like eventually we're gonna have to start asking ourselves at what cost? <clears throat> I have been of the mindset that maybe we need to just let what happens happen uh, and make the decision that ultimately these younger people need to start having more say in what we're doing right now mm. and maybe have the reality of the situation acknowledged by older generations. Yeah. Damon, what do you think about that? I feel like you might feel the same way. Um, yeah, so I am more worried about the fact that there's just so much money printing going on and everything that, you know, assets are going to go way up. Not a lot of people have access to assets. You know, if you're lucky enough to have shares or a house or anything like that, then you're going to be relatively like, you know, maybe okay as that rises to combat like the how much devaluation is happening. But on the whole, that seems to be worrying for me. I also don't know. And, you know, I don't really have a I come from a perspective from like I'm a self-employed and I've worked as a developer for like four years. I don't have to talk to anyone. Not a so property I don't have developer. To go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a <laughs> so I don't, I don't have to go outside, you know, and I frequently don't for like a week. So it's not impactful for me, but there's been people that I've lived with who couldn't go to work all of a sudden, you know, and like lost all their income. And I've met a 
bunch of people like that who have been like pretty brutalized from it. Um, mm. And it's hard because I can't understand what that's like because, uh, you know, I can just sit in this little room and be okay. But <laughs> yeah. So yeah, Amy, what do you think about it all? Yeah, yeah. Look, I think what we've seen over the last couple of months is all these issues that were sitting already existing in um, in our lives and in our economy have kind of bubbled up and become much more serious. So, you know, we already had housing crisis. We already had, um, like, big issues with youth unemployment. Um, we know our welfare system in Australia is um, woeful and discriminatory and actively harmful. Um, you know, our higher education system is looking pretty bad at the moment. And so the day-to-day lives of, of lots of young people was already pretty tough. And the last few months, I think, um, for a lot of people, um, it has gotten even more so. Just as an example, I live in a share house. Um, There's five of us. Uh, A bunch of people in the house lost their jobs and um, we were suddenly having to negotiate with the landlord um, a rent reduction so that, you know, we would actually be able to keep living uh, under shelter. Um, And there's a lot of people, you know, things have happened really quickly and those kind of existing instabilities have then kind of ruptured and become a lot worse. And I think a lot of young people, um, I mean, a lot of young people that I speak to, a lot of people who've gotten involved in the campaign, um, the the COVID crisis has really been a bit of a trigger um, for people to get involved. And, um, and, you know, rather than kind of feeling, um, you know, helpless and despair, that there's pathways to get involved that can offer a bit of hope. And like, there's no guarantee that we're going to be successful as, you know, in combating climate change or dealing with the housing crisis. Um, But there's opportunities to, to be involved in that struggle. And so many young people that I speak to, are just so switched on and um, are so aware of these inequalities that are being pushed on them. And like you said, like a lot of these costs that young people are going to be having to pay down the track, but are so aware of like the political context that has led to this. You know, I was teaching at the university a couple of years ago and, like, over the period of time that I was teaching, like, the young people that were coming through were just, um, like, phenomenal in terms of their, like, knowledge and awareness of what was going on. So I think there's, like, I think there's pathways that young people are definitely engaging in to try and um, deal with some of this. And as I, I said before, you know, focusing on the big corporations is um, is really powerful because, you know, at the end of the day, they're responsible for a lot of um, what has been going on and they're this common enemy can kind of unite uh, across generations as well. So being able to bring together, you know, young people, old people, people with disabilities, people on the aged care pension, you know, all these kinds of people who have been affected by the same economic conditions to come together against um, this common enemy. And, you know, hopefully, rather than uh, us having to pay for it down the track, we have an opportunity to make these big corporations pay so we can be, you know, building 100% um, clean energy, building 100,000 public homes, um, you know, making university actually free again so that we're not 
you know, dealing out young people 20 years of debt, um, which yeah, is that's right. yeah. What do you mean? I love the debt. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I get off yeah. of it. Um, um, I'm still going to be paying off my own hex debt for some time to come, yeah. um, but maybe we can be fighting to make sure that, you know, the next, um, the next generation of graduates aren't dealing with that as well. So, yeah, I'm not sure if that completely uh, answers your question, but I think, like, you know, young people recognise that they're on the forefront of a lot mm. of these struggles. Um, they recognise that, um, you know, our parents' generation and and so on have, have you know, we're growing up in different times. Um, yeah. But even I think that, I mean, there's plenty of people um, of my parents' generation, older and younger, who... Um, who recognise these inequalities, recognise the ways in which they might have um, been privileged through that, but mm. are really excited and energised by getting involved in some of these struggles um, and some of these fights. Yeah, there are a few, or, you know, more than a few. It's mm. nice to see that there is that um, acknowledgement. Yeah. Um, if you were to win the election, would you prefer to sit on the left or the right-hand side of Michael Berkman? <laughs> Have you guys talked about that? <laughs> we haven't. We haven't talked about that. I'm just trying to think where he he sits in Parliament at the moment. I think he sits next to the Catters. He might be actually. Yeah, nice. I think he's on the the yeah, the cross bench. Sits with the LNP and the Catters. Um, mm. You guys could like um, throw paper at each other. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Look, I hope I hope we're all together. Um, probably um, somewhere up the back, but uh, <laughs> I haven't quite thought about which side I'd like yeah, to. Right. Look, Michael Berkman is. A very beautiful man. Um, On both sides. Both sides would be be great. Yeah, right. Are you guys, do you know what Handy writes with? Uh, No, I don't. Maybe you need to coordinate that with him so you're not knocking elbows. So that we're (laughs) taking notes in the right direction. That could be disruptive in the chamber. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) yeah. Some good tips, yeah. Yeah. Um, (laughs) uh, So, at the moment, we have a pretty interesting situation in Kangaroo Point where 120 men are being um, detained indefinitely against international law um, for seeking asylum in Australia. Is that outside of the South Brisbane electorate No, by a hair or it, is it in it? It's right in the middle of the South Brisbane mm. electorate, yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. Has, has Jackie Trad spoken on that at all? Um, there's been a letter written to National Cabinet. Um, I think that's the extent of Labor's involvement down mm. there. What um, did the letter say? Uh, just it was asking for the topic to be raised. Yeah, right. Yeah. So very stern words. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, what, yeah. I'm not sure what else you could expect from, I mean, Labor ultimately the architects of mandatory mm. detention in Australia. Um, so it wasn't particularly surprising. Yeah. It's a really intense situation down there. Yeah. Um, and I had an interesting experience there recently where I went to a couple of the rallies and then participated in one of the, um, well, that sort of rolling blockade that was mm. happening there. Mm. And um, something that struck me about it was that although it's a cause that I deeply care about, I felt grossly alienated by mm. the views and the behaviour of a lot of the people who are taking part in the, okay. the action down there. Yeah. And for my entire life, I've been someone who sympathises a lot with progressive causes. Do you feel as though, I know obviously the Greens rely a lot on a really enthusiastic and passionate base, but do you, 
ever feel as though you guys need to draw a line in terms of maybe also, sorry, I'll preface this by saying I also acknowledge that the action down there is not necessarily um, affiliated formally with the Greens. Mm, but mm. I do know that a lot of the people that participate in that are fervent Green supporters and mm, often volunteer mm, and whatnot. Mm, yeah. So I guess what I'm saying is like, how would you sort of try and reconcile the alienation that a lot of people might feel from the behaviour of people like that with mm. the Greens as a whole or progressive movements, maybe I should mm, say? Mm, yeah. It's really tricky case down there because the refugee movement has been going on for, you know, so long in Australia mm. and um, we've pretty much gotten nowhere. Um, you know, all the tactics that we've tried have failed and, you know, we've had, um, you know, this brief kind of moment of hope and real, like, collective solidarity with the Baby Asher um, movement. You might remember from a few years ago where there was people mm -hmm. around the hospital which ended up, you know, protecting that family from being um, uh, moved back to the detention centre, but now they're in community detention. And it was focused on one particular family, so it didn't end up with any kind of systemic results. Mm -hmm. And um, we have another situation here where we have this particular group of 120 men and I think the levers for actually making change in terms of refugee policy in Australia... Um, you know, it can't just be sort of, uh, fight of fighting for an isolated group of people. Um, obviously, I think, you know, we need to be doing everything we can to um, stick up for those men mm -hmm. um, who are just in the most appalling conditions. And um, this is the latest thing that we've tried, you know, blockading the building directly and having lots of those rallies for those men. But one of the things that I've been um, talking with about some of my colleagues is that probably the fight for refugees isn't going to happen in Kangaroo Point. It's going to happen out in our, um, you know, in our outer suburbs. It's going to happen in places like Ipswich and Logan and it's going to happen, you know, out in rural seats as well. Being able to go and talk to people there and say, like I mentioned before, like the refugees aren't the enemy we have these other collective enemies that we can be working together against and we've got more in common with these refugees than we do with, um, you know, CEOs or a lot of politicians as well. So um, I don't think, like, Kangaroo Point is not going to be the end of the refugee movement um, and I think the, the, the really productive work is going to be happening um, elsewhere. And, yeah, I mean, regardless of what you think about the tactics down there, like we have something really abhorrent going on and we're basically trying everything that we can. Um, mm. And I think having that kind of, like, collective... Uh, having a, a politics that's focused on um, bringing people together and finding that common humanity and that kind of universalist politics, I think, um, is going to be really important for the refugee movement. And uh, as you've recognised, it is sometimes lacking. I mean, there's all different kinds of people who have been involved in this movement, but I think having that kind of collective approach um, is going to be crucial. And also thinking about um, the broader kind of economic situation as well. There's some amazing research from an organisation called the Scanlon Foundation. They do an annual um, survey and they've mapped um, sentiment to migration on top of employment levels and it is oh, astounding wow. um, because it is pretty much um, mapped on top of each other. So you can see directly how economic conditions are leading into like an anti-immigration um, sentiment. It's really a fascinating bit of research. 
And so I think that like the struggle for making sure we have those jobs, making sure those services are well funded is linked to the struggle for refugees and it's linked to the struggle for the climate. You mentioned before like climate refugees if we're going to deal with climate change, we're going to be, you know, pretty quickly having to to deal with uh, an influx of people who are going to be coming to Australia. We're already seeing that, you know, people coming down from um, from the islands up north uh, as their islands get inundated. Um, so I think, you know, these these struggles are really interconnected. Um, mm-hmm. Kangaroo Point is one particular very important flashpoint, but it's not going to be the end of that the end of the refugee movement. That's really, it sounds like a, it's just a lot of humanizing and having to go and and really just connect with people. And there's no way, I suppose the media's kind of let everyone down on that part. optimizing for like well i mean if you like optimize for sensation optimizing for outrage i just can't get that dog lodger holiday out of my head that's that's (laughs) they could just i'm surprised the courier mail don't do like an anniversary rerun of that headline every year (laughs) (laughs) there's a a different photo about the same headline yeah yeah Um, yeah yeah. so i guess in lieu of like being able to get uh objective media um is the, the the real path forward then do you think just having to do the hard yards and go meet as many people as possible to get people interested in politics again yeah i think that's that's definitely part of it um you know going going to have those one-on-one conversations with people that cuts through um you know everything else um you know people are um, you know, even though the media we know can be really biased and really terrible, like a lot of people aren't paying attention to that either. And so having, mm. you know, someone from your community who you trust come and have a conversation with you is going to be the most powerful thing um, and is the thing that's most likely to, um, you know, shift your views on on any particular topic. But I think the other really important thing is actually getting some material gains for people. Um, you know, we're not going to be able to do this if, um, you know, people are still struggling with like, you know, on the edge of defaulting on their mortgage, for example, or they're still struggling, like paying huge amounts of money for petrol to get their kids to school. You know, we're not going to be able to build those connections and to be, you know, shifting sentiment around migration and refugees if people are really still struggling like that. So I think finding ways to make some some decent material gains really quickly um, is going to be another really important part of this movement, um, which is a core part of what we're doing, like, the, the things that we're focusing on are things that, you know, could be realised um, very quickly if we had the political will and would be transformative for so many people's lives, transformative for their own lives and then transformative in terms of this um, this broader political picture as well. Do you think there's a dystopia lying if this stuff isn't addressed? Because I, I wonder, like, I yeah, I love what you're saying, especially as someone who's kind of, like, drowned in political apathy for years. Um just because, like, I've never felt like anyone really represented what I wanted them to represent. And I haven't met any of them. I've met, like, one of our right-wing candidates when I was back at university, and they just happened to be giving a talk. They're, like, the, you know, one of the few people who came down to actually give a talk at the university. Um, and I was like, oh, whatever, this this sucks. You know, left and just kind of left it for, like, eight years. Um, but, yeah, do you... Sorry, I lost my train of thought on the question that I was asking. Is there a coming dystopia? Oh, yeah, yeah. Do you think this stuff is... Because, I mean, obviously we're seeing, like, in the States, 
I had to delete my Twitter again for like the millionth time mm. recently after just seeing yeah. more riots and people getting shot and stuff and, and like the massive disconnect between everyone there. Um, yeah. That if it's not addressed, that that could happen in Australia. Yeah, yeah. I think like, yeah, the, the states are a, a pretty good example of what happens when um, you aren't funding those services when you've like completely atomized people um, and when people's self-worth is based solely on um, you know whether you have work or not and like your access to us like it's kind of insane that to get healthcare you have to have a job and we're seeing the results of this we're seeing the results of like colonization capitalism um, like excessive militarization and like a history of violent policing kind of coming together and we have a we have a lot of that here in Australia you know we have this ongoing um, violent colonial history we have um, you know very real and pressing impacts of climate change you know a lot of the issues that I've already mentioned like a housing crisis um, and uh, you know these these services that we consider to be free and essential like um, education and healthcare slowly becoming privatized and more expensive um, and so you know we definitely see the risks of of a lot of this and um, you know, you'd hope that we aren't heading down the same road as the states, but, um, you know, you have to fight for it and you have to defend what you have and then um, and also be, ex you know, expanding and extending what you've got to make sure that, um, you know, those base conditions are there. That means that we're able to be looking after each other. Um, is there a dystopia coming? Like, um, like you definitely feel like you're already living it sometimes. Like, yeah, um, amen. Uh, <laughs> earlier in the year when the bushfires were happening and, um, you know, Brisbane was um, clouded in smoke, uh, me and my friends every day, we would check the, like, the air quality um, uh, stations and you could see every day very bad, very bad. And we somehow became experts in, like, you know, air quality uh, analysis <laughs> in the same way that now so many people are experts in like microbiology. Oh, don't you love that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there's definitely these yeah. moments where you sort of get an insight into like what's going to happen if we don't address this and like there's a lot of parts of the world where this is already like a clear reality. I mean, just mentioned the States, but um, in Bangladesh and India at the moment, they have some of the worst flooding from the monsoons um, right now, like a lot of towns going underwater, like this is already happening. We're already living in this kind of dystopian reality in a lot of ways. Um, mm. But I think, like, I couldn't do what I do if I didn't have some hope and I, I couldn't do what I do if I didn't have hope in other people as well. Um, you know, I talk to sometimes hundreds of people a week and, um, you know, I have to believe that people are, are good and people are. Um, you just have to be able to offer people a clear pathway. Like people are feeling really hopeless and helpless and that will mean that people are switching off. Um, but if you're able to go and, and talk to people and say like, you know, there's a common humanity here and there's a common moment of hope and it's one of the the my favourite things when we go out street chatting and I get to watch another volunteer, like, stop someone in the street who's like, oh, I hate politics, oh, I don't want to talk to you. And then after, like, you know, a bit of questioning, um, you can see the other person being like, wow, there's, um, 
there's actually, there's some hope here and there's, um, there's people who are fighting for me and uh, maybe I can fight for that too. So I think I have to have a bit of hope. Um, there's that, um, you know, famous um, Gramsci quote, uh, I'll always get it wrong, optimism of the will, pessimism of the mind, but the other way around, pessimism of the yeah, mind, right. optimism of the will. And so you have to, you have to keep on working as if we, we can save the world, we can change the world and we can make mm-hmm. the world great with um, that, you know, that bit of pessimism in your mind um, that keeps you grounded um, but will also keep you working hard. Um, you you know. guys should um, live stream those hopeful moments and charge yes. per minute for <laughs> yeah. people online as a campaign yeah, funder, yeah, yeah. fundraiser. Yeah, yeah. it'll Just be like, like some kind of like campaign ASMR Um, (laughs) (laughs) oh that's so good actually because we have like a running thing on this podcast where like most episodes we try and work in like 10 seconds of asmr oh yeah 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 so um yeah there you go that's a little sipping some water and yeah yeah Yeah, go um do you have a routine for like dealing with those really shitty days when it kind of looks all bleak and hopeless yeah because uh, we really yeah. need that. <laughs> <laughs> Let me think about what I do. Um, I think, like, I am in a really, um, really lucky, like, privileged position. Like, being a candidate is, uh, like, I feel very lucky to be doing this because every day I get to be fighting for this world in a very active way. I get to go and talk to lots of people. I get to go and find out about people's lives and building those connections. I mean, even for someone like me who's naturally an introvert, like I get a lot of energy from going and um, and connecting with people and talking with people and, um, you know, being able to be involved in all kinds of different movements and different struggles. Um, and I find that really exciting. And like a big part of um, my own politics is like just showing up and showing solidarity. And so, you know, going along to all different kinds of events and just sort of being there, um, you know, that that really helps me. And seeing that there's lots of other people out there who are doing that too is is really hopeful. And, you know, I also have the benefit of having, like, this incredible team of volunteers around me um, who are fighting for this world as well. And so when I think, oh, this is a really bloody hard day and, you know, I'm getting mm. trolled online or something like that, like yeah. I look around <laughs> and I see, like, there's all these young people who are showing up. They're showing up to door knocks or they're showing up to phone banks and they're giving their time for this movement as well um and so that really um gives me a lot of hope um i think being a bit strict around your consumption of social media is also important um, very not, important not, yeah not switching off entirely um but you know just um being like it's 8 p.m um the trolls can wait until working hours yeah um and doing that and, yeah, and le- failing everything else, just, like, having a cup of tea and patting my dog. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Do you have any, like, uh, do you, were there any trolls that you think were creative enough that you deserve a reluctant shout-out? Were there any times where you read their <laughs> comment and you're like, fuck, that's actually pretty funny? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, there's, yeah, there's definitely been definitely like funny things like I I occasionally like screenshot the subject lines of of emails I've during the 2017 election some of the, my core flutes got defaced yeah, um, right. with just like 
cunt across the neck and liar across the forehead. (laughs) And um, I kept one of them actually because I... I think it's, I still find it quite funny um, now. So, yeah, just occasionally, like, yeah, people just, I don't know, they just come up with, like, funny ways of trying to offend you. Mm. And, um, you know, for a moment I can sort of look at it and be like, hmm, and think about it for a second and then you can sort of um, move on. You could have rolled out the next fleet of signs with a neck tap. Yes. <laughs> I have joked about this. I'm like, I'll just do the work for you guys. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, there's always some very creative core flute uh, defacement that goes on. So excited yeah. to see what 2020 holds. I mean, it's almost like public yeah. art, so, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and, and look, like, as a public figure, like, you got to just – sort of Roll accept the that, punches. yeah, 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 that's yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, we have barely, like, you know, compared to you, we have, like, a very small profile and we already receive, like, some pretty, like, um, weirdly yeah. antagonistic yeah, messages yeah, yeah, and yeah, stuff yeah. on social media. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> pretty fun. Like, um, I think we got accused of being, like, pedos oh, by some no. guy on, oh, so okay. that was oh, that's, good. Right. That's pretty awful. It's like, yeah, yeah. it's like, um, way to drag us down into the mud man but that's all right well i feel like we should squeeze in one more thing i don't want to end on that note (laughs) Um, (laughs) okay amy maybe why don't you um summarize your message i'm sure that you guys have obviously rehearsed a thousand times for this and i think you've been doing a good job already but if you were to just give like a 20 second little um you know something for people to take away yeah yeah, I think this election is quite pivotal in a lot of ways. Four mm-hmm. percent um, swing needed. Only very, very small swing. Uh, yeah, less than four percent. And more broadly, I think for Queensland, this is a really important election. You know, we've only got a few more years to deal uh, with climate change, and we're in the middle of a recession. And the decisions that we make now will are going to shape our future for a long time. Mm-hmm. And the vision that we're offering is. Um, you know, being able to take on these big corporations to make their pay their fair share so that we have the money that we need to be um, investing in our schools, having an excellent public uh, education system, expanding our healthcare system and creating really exciting new jobs in new industries um, in things like, you know, building renewable energy. 100% publicly owned renewable energy is possible here in Queensland. We could be creating thousands of jobs and dealing with the climate crisis and supporting um, workers in these transition industries. Um, And the only thing missing at the moment is political will. And Mm -hmm. really the only party that is willing to take on these big corporations, um, I think, are the Greens, because we don't take any corporate donations. Um, So we're not beholden to these big corporations in any way. At the end of the day, we're just accountable um, to the community. And, um, you know, this this struggle isn't going to end on October 31st. Um, this is a, an ongoing movement of everyday people working together um, to create a better world. Um, and we're, you know, so excited for the next couple of months. If any of you listeners out there want to get involved, um, please reach out. We'd love to have you on board. Um, it's going to be a bloody exciting eight weeks in the lead mm-hmm. up to October um, 31st. Cool. Sounds like it beats sitting around the apartment. <laughs> get out meet some people. Do you have a broader (laughs) message just on that note to uh, those of us not yet in Brisbane and those of us who may not be in Brisbane 
um, on things that they should be looking at in terms of political issues or, you know, the politically uh, apathetic? Politically apathetic. Look, I think pay attention to to what is happening this election, Um, but there's some really exciting stuff. And look, if you're feeling apathetic, your instincts are spot on um, because the political system has been set up in such a way to make you feel like that. Um, But there's some really exciting work going on um, on whatever your particular concern might be, like some really exciting um, organising happening Um, around welfare, for example. If you haven't already checked out the Australian Unemployed Workers Union, they're doing some incredible work if you're interested in in that, in kind of welfare and young people. There's some really exciting organising going on at a lot of the universities around the higher education system. Um, Obviously, a lot of cool stuff happening around um, climate movements. Um, And obviously, the the Greens are kind of the confluence of a coming together of a lot of these different issues. Um, so if you wanted to check out some of the stuff the Greens are talking about, we've got some super cool candidates running um, in a lot of seats. We've got seven seats uh, where we're looking to get some candidates in, um, some really cool ground campaigns um, going on. So for those of you outside of Brisbane, um, lots of stuff going on on Facebook, obviously lots of like cool like online organising happening in the wake of the lockdown um, and some interesting stuff you can read um, and have a look at um, as well. Cool. All right. There we go. Well, I am going to say that's a pretty good note to end on. So... Thank you, everybody, once again for listening. Thank you, Amy McMahon, for joining us and answering our questions uh, and enlightening us all somewhat. Um, I feel very refreshed. Thank you as well. Yeah, I feel somewhat refreshed (laughs) as well, actually. Um, It's it's a bit of a stifling afternoon in Brizzy. It's a bit of a warm one, (laughs) and I'm sitting in my living room with the doors closed, warming up somewhat. Uh But, but yeah, I feel, feel a little bit more optimistic. Uh, after this conversation um listeners if you want to hit us up email us at modernguiltpod at gmail.com follow us on instagram at modernguiltpod whatever else message us whatever we can maybe forward amy some questions yeah and then she can email us back and we'll answer them on the next pod yeah uh or critiques Yes, yeah, yeah, no, 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 (laughs) like happy for uh, if we're Mm -hmm. serious about doing politics differently, we also need to be serious about, you know, uh, dealing with critiques and being accountable um, to what we're putting out in the world. So, yeah, happy for for any feedback. And if people want to get at you, uh, what's the best way that they can? Um, You can find me on Facebook, um, Amy McMahon Greens for South Brisbane. Um, I'm on Twitter as Amy Mac South Briz and on Instagram as well. Cool. Beautiful. All right. Boom. Boom. Sweet. Let's call it. Thank you.